Long before Christianity was a thing, the Greek philosophers were busy thinking about the deep things of life. And they'll teach us and tell us that there's a difference between uh, metaphysical impossibility and some other type of impossibility, like a, a merely physical impossibility or a biological impossibility. You know, so it's impossible in the physical realm for a dead person to come back to life. That's just an impossibility. But it's not a metaphysical impossibility. A, a metaphysical impossibility would be something like somebody being both dead and alive at the same time in the same way. But that's a metaphysical impossibility. It's not because of the thing itself. It's because of being itself. It just doesn't, you can't even, you can't even comprehend this sort of thing. Uh, it's a metaphysical impossibility for me to walk both to my left and to my right at the same time. It's a metaphysical impossibility for me to be standing here at the ambo preaching to you and to not be standing here at the ambo preaching to you at the same time. Those are metaphysical impossibilities. But there's things that are physical impossibilities, biological impossibilities that uh, aren't impossibilities in and of themselves. They're just impossibilities because we don't have the power to make them possible. So this is important because when we, talk, we say for God, nothing is impossible. Well, that's not quite accurate because a contradiction is a nothing. And nothing is impossible for God. He can't do nothing. So you say, can God make a four-sided triangle? No, God can't make a four-sided triangle. That's not a thing. That's, that's an impossibility. That's a metaphysical impossibility. Once you make a triangle have four sides, it's not a triangle anymore. And it can't both be a triangle and a square at the same time. But can God raise the dead? Yeah, God can do that. Can we do that? No, we can't do that. Can God make the he crippled man walk? Yeah, God can do that. We can't do that. But God can do impossible things. But not metaphysically impossible things. I think this is interesting because the, the Jews who are hearing Jesus speak about him feeding, him, feeding them with his, their body and, his body and blood, he says, they say, how is this possible? Now, there's, there's two ways to ask a question like how. One is the way that the Blessed Virgin Mary asked the question when the angel Gabriel came to, came to her. She said, how, how is this possible? Like, how is he going to do this? Zechariah, just a few months beforehand, had been told a similar thing that had far less, uh, was far less impossible, and he said, how is that going to happen? Right? So it's a total, total difference. So how are they asking this question? Well, I think it's like, how can this guy do this? That's impossible. Peter has the right answer. Peter is asked, the end, we know how the story ends, everybody decides to leave because they don't believe that he can do this, or they don't like it, or whatever it is, and Jesus says to the apostles, are you going to leave too? Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. In other words, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe that you can do it. And that's important. And this is the whole basis of our understanding of the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. We don't know how he does it, but we know that he can do it. We know that it's not outside of the realm of possibility. It's impossible for me to do it. It's impossible for you to do it. We can't just go around making bread turn into something else. That's a, that's a physical impossibility. But it's not a metaphysical impossibility. It's not impossible for, for God to do something like this. I think actually, though, that most of us don't quite understand the complete ramifications of the doctrine of transubstantiation. 
that when we think about it or don't think about it, we think of it as something completely other than that it is. If the statistics are true that only 30% of Catholics even believe in the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, I would say that probably like 1% of those actually have an inkling of how it actually works. Because we just haven't really thought about it. And all of those who have disregarded it, pretty much all of them have no idea what's, what's actually going on. They have no idea what the teaching is. And this is where sometimes the, the church gets kind of this, oh, the church is, you know, like foolish and lives in the dark ages still and blah, 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 blah. I say, wow, you, you haven't read any of the literature because this is some fascinating stuff when we get into it. You know, so that, that transubstantiation means that the substance changes and the accidents don't. What? Well, yeah, these words don't mean much to us because we haven't di- dived in because they're philosophical terms. They're not theological terms primarily. And so the substance is the thing itself. But we don't see the thing itself. We can't feel the thing itself. We can't hear the thing itself. Those are only things that we perceive and we perceive attributes. We perceive properties of a thing. So if I hold up the host before or after consecration, all you see are the properties. You see whiteness and you see circleness and you feel softness and you taste breadness. Like you just, you, you, the, the senses only get the properties, but you never get to the, the essence of the thing itself. That's the substance. And it's only the substance that changes. It's only the thing itself that changes while everything else remains the same. So you can examine a, a consecrated host all you want and you'll never find any difference because science can only look at material properties. You can't examine the actual essence of a thing. That's, that's the realm of philosophy. And so in this great, amazing miracle of the altar, the bread is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus while the perception, everything perceptible, remains exactly the same. And what's more is this isn't a metaphysical possibility. It's just a physical impossibility. But God's not bound to that. God's not bothered by that. Most of us exist by way of quantity. What? Yeah, most of us exist by way of quantity, meaning I take up the space that my body exists in and no more and no less. I'm in every piece of me. That's a, that's a quantitative reality. But it's not impossible to think that a quantitative presence of Jesus in heaven, in his body, could also simultaneously exist in a non-quantitative way in every tabernacle in the world. So he exists in a sacramental way, that his presence is made, is, is, his, his, his real presence is made present by the, the, the properties of the bread that are no longer bread. Think of it like this. This is a rough analogy. If you could imagine a mirror that, that wasn't reflecting anything, like there's just nothing reflecting, you just, you just have a mirror and that's it. And then all of a sudden something steps into a, a human being, a man steps into the image of the mirror. The mirror itself didn't change. But somehow now there's this reality there that wasn't there a moment ago. It's not a physical reality. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. I can't smell it. I can't taste it. The mirror itself hasn't changed, but now there's something contained in it that's different. It's more real. It's more powerful. It's more beautiful than a mirror existing by itself. 
but the mirror itself hasn't changed. Now, take that mirror and break it, and what do you have? Well, now all of a sudden you have many images of that man, but the man hasn't changed. The man is in one place doing one thing, and now there's many reflections of him. This is a rough analogy of what's happening in the Eucharist. Jesus is in heaven in his body and does not change. But in this, this miracle of miracles, Jesus is now also present in the tabernacle. He's now present also on the altar. He's now present when you receive him in your very body. But not in a quantitative way that I take up the space that I occupy, but in a way that's totally, we have no other examples of it. We have no other, no other way. Our, our imagination struggles with and wrestles with it. But what we're not saying is that when Jesus is being distributed at Holy Communion, that he's traveling to the left and to the right both at the same time. That's actually a metaphysical impossibility. But if I have a mirror reflecting Jesus or somebody and that the mirror can go wherever it wants, the image hasn't moved. And there can be as many presences of that image that we want, that can exist without doing any, any change to the actual subject, the actual essence. Now, obviously, the analogy breaks apart because the mirror doesn't make the person close to you, whereas the Eucharist, Jesus is actually there. He's actually present. I say all this because I think we need to understand as, as Catholics that this doctrine is profoundly deep. And there's been so much thought poured into it that we could, we, could spend, we could spend hours contemplating and people have spent lifetimes contemplating. And yet how often do we go through our day or go to mass and go through the motions of receiving this thing that has uh, amazing, amazing ripple effects and amazing, amazing uh, ramifications in, in reality. Because it's not a metaphysical impossibility for Jesus to transform bread into his substance. It's not a metaphysical impossibility for him to raise the dead. It's not a metaphysical impossibility for him to forgive sins. It's not a metaphysical impossibility for him to transform us by way of the Eucharist into himself. But that's actually the miracle of miracles. And that's the one that, the, what's, what's even more profound about it is that he leaves that one up to us. We can go through the motions all we want and come receive the communion as many times as we want and nothing will happen to us. Just like it doesn't seem like anything's happened to the hosts on the altar because he doesn't force himself upon us. He, he's, he's open to our disposition. Are we willing, are we open to what he wants to do in our life, the transformative power of this sacrament? So as we celebrate this great feast of Corpus Christi uh, with, with this profundity of, of uh, theology and philosophy all in, this, all in this, little, this little sacrament that we get to receive every day if we want to, let's ask the Lord to, not just to open up our minds. That's good, that's good, but it's not, we can, we can be, we can be good, good Christians, we can be good Catholics and have no idea how he does this, but say, not with these people, how is he gonna do that? But say with, with Peter, how are you gonna do this? How do you do this? How? This is amazing. But actually maybe a better question is why? 
Why are you doing this? Why did you do this, Lord? And the answer is simply love. Because he loves you. He loves you and he wants to be close to you. And he wants to transform you. And he wants you to to go out into the world and tell others about his transformative love. So as we once again witness this this, uh, witnessless miracle that has no no perceptible uh, part to it, Let's, let's with equal faith know and allow the Lord to be in us and transform us from inside out.